Before I begin, I'd like to ask once more time uh, the Lord's assistance in prayer that the Holy Spirit be with us. Our Holy Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we address you. And Holy Spirit, we do address you also. We are asking now that our hearts and minds be open to your truth. Help us to understand. But above all, we pray, Lord, that you would increase our love to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to know him. Help us to know you, Father. And Holy Spirit, help us to embrace your teaching us, your indwelling us. May we follow your leading and may your words of the scriptures be understood from our hearts. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. We would like one more time to read just seven verses. The verses that we'll be looking at concerning the letters written to the churches and in particular the one letter written to the one in Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The doctrine that I would like to expound today can be found in this one simple statement. We must never forget to love Christ before all other things, above all other things. The Holy Spirit is going to provide a wide variety of gifts and helps to each of us. But we must realize that all of these gifts, all of these helps, are designed to aid us, to help us in our having Christ formed in us for our love to Christ. So in review, I'm going to just read two verses and then we'll move on. The two verses I'll read are the last two verses of chapter 1. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are and those things that take place after this, because they are the words of the Alpha and Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end, and that the things that are going to be read about that we're going to look at, they are true for those people in Ephesus. They were true for people that lived from that point to this point, and they are true now. They will be true until the Lord comes back. And asks for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Well, I believe that these are the pastors and elders of those churches, the leadership. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so he walks among his people. And he wants his leadership, he wants the elders to read these things to you. He wants us to understand what he's doing with the churches and he wants us to understand about how he's coming back. So we'll take a look at all seven verses, and uh, we will spend a lot, a lot of time on 
actually the very first verse to get some background about who these people were in Ephesus. And so we'll take a look. Let's, let's read this verse number one again. To the angel and the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. This tells us right away who the people are and where they're at in Ephesus. Now, if you don't know where Ephesus is, it is in a place called Asia Minor. If you recall your high school you know, geography and so on, uh, it is a place that's uh, right to the uh, east of the Mediterranean Sea, right to the, uh, shall we say, well, maybe a little bit, it's north of the Mediterranean Sea, right to the east of the Aegean Sea. It was a very important city at this time, a very important city. It's what we would call today as Turkey, if you know where the country of Turkey is. It is mostly Muslim today. Now, some scholars and historians will say that Ephesus was one of the most important cities in Asia Minor at this time. It was a Roman city. It was a proconsul government seat of the Roman government in Asia Minor, which means that there were people representing the Roman government there that people could approach, people could take their uh, litigation for their uh, lawsuits or any type of uh, legal issues or taxing and so on. They were a legal representative of the power of Rome in that area. And so Ephesus was a very large, a very wealthy city. It was filled with tradesmen, merchants. It had a harbor in this city. Not, it wasn't right on the coast, but there was a river that led up to Ephesus, and therefore they had a harbor where people could bring in the merchants, their merchandise from all over the world. And so Ephesus was a wealthy city. It was actually an astonishing wealthy city for this time. The inhabitants had a lot of modern comforts. Now, as we go through these things, and you become familiar with this town, this, this really big city, I want you to kind of identify with it a little bit, because we are now living in a, a fairly affluent country. We have modern uh, conveniences. Uh, it's been uh, through, uh, through excavations, we have learned that the ancient people that lived in the first century, they actually had multi-level homes. Now, I don't know if you uh, are impressed with that, but even today, if you want to build a two-story house, you need to have... Uh, uh, a real engineer sign off on those plans. They must be built accordingly. They have to be able to withstand the structure and the stress uh, and, the, and proper building materials. And these buildings withstood the, time, uh, the test of time. And so these people were skilled. These people knew what they were doing. They actually had more than just places to live. They had places that were enjoyably, uh, you could live in it enjoyably. It was uh, architecturally uh, beautiful. Their floors had mosaic designs in them. It's not as though you could just walk into one of their homes and say, you know what, I would like to walk on something a little bit more beautiful than just concrete. They had concrete, by the way. They, had, they wanted something more than that. They wanted to be able to, to enjoy the beauty of life. They had marble on walls. Now, you may say, well, sure, you know, that was back in the time when all they had was stone. You have to understand that these things were quarried, these were cut, these were polished, these were moved. These were impressive homes. These were places that, uh, that, were, that would make even us say, man, I, I wouldn't mind living in one of those. They had heated floors that were, um, show, uh, they were, they were impressive. They had heat exchange technology where they could draw heat from the earth and move it from one place to another, and their floors would radiate heat, very much like the Romans would do with their bathhouses. 
And so they had green technology. They were able to, to really live comfortably. Most of the homes in Ephesus that were of affluent people had running water within them. And so they were very affluent in their time. Now this place was a place that the Apostle Paul spent extended amount of time. Paul went on three missionary journeys, but near the end of his third missionary journey, he spent three years in this place. It was around 53 AD when he uh, went there to live uh, for this period of time. And at the time, it's estimated that there were about 250,000 people living in Ephesus. Now, you may not get a grasp of how that is, but there's a little bit less than 50,000 people living right here in Titusville. And so Titusville is about one-fifth of the size of Ephesus, which means it's not like a New York, it's not like a Chicago, but it was a real uh, metropolis. It had people there that had a substantial amount of wealth, and they were very influential around the world. The Apostle Paul was very instrumental in bringing a church uh, to this place and giving them uh, a good grounding. He trained the leaders that were at Ephesus. This was the starting place of many of the other churches in Asia Minor. And so it's important. Rather than bring in all the information I could from historians and books and so on, what I wanted to do is bring to you what the scriptures tell you about Ephesus, because I believe that the scriptures will give us a better feel for the spiritual nature of what was happening in this city. And so there are some passages throughout the New Testament that speaks directly to the, uh, the mental state of the people, the spiritual condition of the people, the type of atmosphere that the Apostle Paul and all the Christians there would, were coming up against. And I'm going to go through just very briefly all the passages that refer to it, but I'm going to spend most of my time in Acts chapter 19 to let you know who these people were and why they were rebuked. And so in Acts 18, you don't have to go there, but if you wish, if you, you can, in Acts 18, verses 18 through 21, you will read about a man by the name of Apollos. Now, Apollos was a Christian. He was a very good biblical theologian, and he was convinced by John the Baptist that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But he only had his teaching from John the Baptist. And when he arrived at Ephesus, it was Aquila and Priscilla that, that taught him a little bit more about the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially about the Holy Spirit, perhaps. We don't know exactly what his errors were, but it, we, we do know that Aquila and Priscilla were the ones that taught him more uh, expertly about what the Word of God was about. But this man was famous for his oratory skills, and he was uh, uh, received in many places as an excellent preacher of the, of, of the gospel. In Acts chapter 20, we also see from verses 17 to 18 that this was at the end of his third missionary journey. Now notice that we went from 18 to 20, and we're going to spend most of the time in between there. But in Acts 20, we see that the Apostle Paul is going to go return to Jerusalem. Now it's believed that when he gets to Jerusalem that he's going to be arrested. And therefore, when he stops by Ephesus, he calls the leaders over to talk to them. And they all know that if the Apostle Paul makes it to Jerusalem, he's probably going to be arrested. And so it's a very emotional time. And so he calls the leaders there. He wanted to say his goodbyes. He wanted to pray with them for their future needs. And it was at this time that we have a very uh, heart-stirring place 
in the time of the Apostle Paul and for the time of the Ephesian elders. I want to refer one more time to another passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is explaining about the resurrection and about how we are going to be raised from the dead. And in Paul's explanation, he refers to Ephesus in this way. He makes a reference by encountering beasts that were at Ephesus. And of course, the idea there is that, hmm, perhaps he was thrown into the Colosseum. They had a very large Colosseum at Ephesus. Or perhaps he was referring to the people that he encountered there, because uh, even Peter refers to the unsaved as brute beasts who are able to take and understand the knowledge of Scripture and still not embrace it. And so the idea that he is referring to meeting with beasts in Ephesus has to do that the Apostle Paul wanted to illustrate that there's, he had a, a strong belief in the resurrection and that he would have the courage to oppose even the wiles of beasts because he knew that he would physically be raised from the dead. And so let's now go to our and turn our attention to chapter 19. Chapter 19 is going to give us a little bit of a background of what these people had to endure, what they were like, what was going and what was happening in Ephesus. And it wouldn't be just one. It would just be a few years after these events that the Apostle John would then send this letter to the people living in Ephesus. We can learn very much about this, so let's kind of pay attention to what's, what's happened in chapter 19. There are four basic events that happened in Acts chapter 19. The first event that I want to refer to is that the Apostle Paul meets 12 disciples there, and they are disciples of John the Baptist. Now, he immediately asks, them the question, well, have you received the Holy Ghost since you have believed? And they responded with, well, we haven't even heard that there be such a person as the Holy Spirit. And he asked the question, well, then to what were you baptized? You see, John the Baptist was preaching repentance and that they should look for the one that should come after. And so they knew that the Messiah would come. And they even were told, behold, the Lamb of God, this is Jesus Christ. But there was something missing in the teaching concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because it was in the later ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Lord said, I will send a comforter to you. And so when Paul explained to them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he laid, and after he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he laid his hands on them, and then they spoke with different languages and proceeded to show publicly that they were receiving the instructed truth about the Holy Spirit. And so this was uh, something that the entire uh, synagogue there and all the people that were believers witnessed. And this went out into the community, and it was very clear that something was happening here. Something with uh, happening that there was the authority of the Paul and the power of the gospel to change things and to move in a city that was designed to bring glory to Diana, or another name would be Artemis, you probably heard that name recently. We just sent up a rocket by the name of Artemis. You know why, right? Artemis is the, uh, is the, is the uh, Greek name uh, for Diana. Diana is, uh, Diana is Greek, and I think Artemis is Latin. Well, I may have those turned around, but it, it works like this. We used to have the Apollo program here, right? Remember back in the 60s? Send a man to the moon. We're going to do that. The Apollo program. Well, now today we're going to go to the twin sister of Apollo, who is Artemis. And uh, this particular view of Artemis, who is Diana, is something that's going to uh, 
show you what type of city we're living in. It is sexually immoral. It's a little bit like, hmm, what more can you, what better name can NASA give this program other than the sexual immoral goddess of Diana that ruled over Ephesus? So we'll leave that as it as it is. So the public was given was given a demonstration that and and all the Gentiles there that they were now confronting a God, the God that could change the hearts of men. And so this was the first event. The second event is this. Once it was known that the Apostle Paul was there in power and that people were demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit by being able to converse in different languages or to speak different languages because there were many people from all around the world there. This was a place where merchant ships would come in and they were experiencing a great deal of merchandise that centered around a goddess. And so what happened next is that there was a group of men who were itinerant exorcists. There were seven of them. They were sons of a high priest called Sceva. And it was known unto these men that the Apostle Paul was healing many, many people. As a matter of fact, they were so famous that uh, at this point, even clothing or pieces of cloth that had touched the skin of the Apostle Paul were used to, to touch other people, and then they were also healed. And this was this created a great tumult in the city. It caused everyone to turn their eyes to a small group of people believing in Jesus Christ. And when the sons of Sceva saw this, they came in and were there to exercise uh, demons out of people. They decided to use the name of Christ and to say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, we exhort you to come out of this, uh, uh, you know, they, they were talking to the demon. And of course, the demon responded with this. You know, I know, I know who Jesus is, and I know who the apostle Paul is, but I have no idea who you are. And so just using the name of the Lord Jesus, which is very popular today, in order to perform miracles or to do things, we have to understand that unless God has his faith within you uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work, do not use the gospel as though it was a magic enchant incantation. You know, and it happens a lot. If I wanted to do this, I would have everyone repeat after me the magic incantation. We don't want to do something like that. We want to have people exercise faith in Christ for what they have learned from the scriptures. But after, after, these, uh, after these men said, I adjure you by the, by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, and then they said, we don't know who you are, they barely escaped with their lives. The demon came at them, injured them, ripped their clothes, and they barely escaped. Now this type of event even went further into the city. People were now discovering that there was the power of God in this church that Christians that believed the gospel, they had the authority, and the name of Jesus Christ was being heard, and the gospel was being preached. Now, the third event that happened is that when people understood that the gospel concerning Christ was real, and that demons were being cast out by Paul, and that people were being healed by Christ, these were verifications that the gospel was true. 
people came out of the woodwork and started to look, started to see, started to understand. And then they said, this really is the power of God. They brought out of their homes books of magical arts, valuable, valuable books. And they would put them into a pile and burn them and saying, this is something that we need to turn our backs on now. There is the real God who has come to visit us. Because you see, Ephesus is that great city in which uh, an image fell down from heaven. An image that looked like, I suppose, like Diana. They called it a stone. But this was the epicenter of the worship of Diana. And now, Jesus Christ and his gospel is being preached. The very idea that this epicenter of the worship of Diana is being attacked and being thrown down and being suppressed by the gospel is something that, that we need to understand. You see, we live in a very similar society, do we not? It is. It is very similar to this. And so the amount of books that were thrown into a pile to burn was about 50,000 pieces of silver. I don't know how much that was, but I'll tell you what, it must be a great amount of wealth. Now, they did not say, I'm going to put these books into a yard sale and get rid of them. They didn't say, I'm going to go to the bazaar and sell them. They're not, they're not going to do any, They're not going to try to recover anything. They saw these things as evil and as wrong. They put them, even though they had value, that is, to others, they could have sold them. They burned them. So, this was a great impact upon this city. People were beginning to take notice of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last event I, wanted, I want you to take note of is that this brought everything to a head. Because people were now starting to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul was preaching. And one of the great things that Paul would preach would be this. Yet the idols that are made by the hands of men are not really God. They cannot be gods. That was one of the main points that Paul was preaching. Because he's filled with a city that's dedicated to, the, to Diana. Now Diana... Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was not just a small place. It was a huge place. It was a place that people would say, this is like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. This is like uh, you know, the, the greatest uh, thing that you could see in this part of the world. And anyone that says, Do you, have you ever heard of the, the goddess Artemis or the goddess Diana? You should go to Ephesus and take a look at that temple. It is magnificent. People would go there. And a large segment of their society was built upon the idea that if you went to Ephesus, you could buy something such as a little miniature of this temple with a little tiny Diana inside of it. And they would say, if you would want to worship Diana, you could buy one of these, take them with you, and it would be just like worshiping here in this temple. Okay? What a deal you can make. You know, what a lot of money these men could make. And so... What these men would do is that they would say, look, we have something that's really about to tumble and topple the economy of our city. This is something that cannot be done. Now, I don't know if they had a, a, a guild back then. You know what a guild is? It's like a union. I don't know if these craftsmen had the ability to say, well, only we can make these idols and you have to join our guild to do so. But I do know this. A man by the name of Demetrius got together with his fellow idol makers and said, look, 
We've got to do something about this Apostle Paul. We have to do something about these Christians. They're about to overturn the entire economy here. We have become rich through the ability to make these idols of the temple to Diana, and now this is being threatened. I can only imagine that, uh, that he would go maybe to the church, maybe to the Jewish synagogue where they were meeting, and they would say something along these lines. Um, they tell me that, uh, that you're going to preach against these idols. Say it ain't so. We've got a union here that says you cannot do something like that. And so with that type of threat, what they did was they brought all the people together and said, we have to bring this to a stop. We have to bring this down. And so Demetrius accused the Christians boldly by saying this. They're claiming that we cannot, with our hands, make these idols. Because they're saying any idol, anything made by a human hand, cannot be of a real God. Therefore, they said, we need to do something without this. So they're going to overthrow the entire city. And so what happens next is that they brought all the people together and they started to design a plan to bring down the Christians in this, in this place. When the Christians and the Jews, because there are two different groups here, we have a group of Jews that became Christians, but we also have a group of Jews that were discontent with what was being preached. At the very beginning of this chapter, right away, uh, they became discontented, and Paul decided to stay and teach for the next two years there. But a group of Jews decided to defend themselves against the riot. A man by the name of Alexander, they all met in the Colosseum there in Ephesus, and the place is filled. I mean, this is like a, an amphitheater. It's not like the one in Rome, maybe not as big, but it was filled with thousands of people. And so when Alexander was recognized to speak for the opposition, this is what uh, Demetrius said. Wait a minute. This guy is a Jew. And as soon as they recognized that he was a Jew, he's saying he's going to tell, tell this to the, proud, to the crowd. He's one of the people that believes there's only one God and no hands can make an idol to that God. And so what happens is that the people started to chant. They started to shout, Great is Artemis of, of Ephesians. Great is Diana of Ephesus. And they shouted over and over again. And you can probably envision this if you were at a political rally when someone stands up and they say, This is what I believe should be done. And people, instead of hearing it, start to chop. I believe this is one of the, the first cancellations that we've ever witnessed in the scriptures. These people were actually canceled. Instead of listening to Alexandria, uh, Alexander, they just shouted him down. Now, we don't know if Alexander was speaking on behalf of the Christians or, or on behalf of the Jews, but we do know this, that the Apostle Paul did speak about a man that did him much harm by the name of Alexander. And we don't know if this man... Uh, at this point, this could have been the very first downfall of Alexander's faith. If he was a Christian, this is where he could have fallen. Or we just don't know. But the point is this. Alexander didn't even have a chance to speak because he was shouted down. There was an opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ because of what the doctrine is concerning who God is. And that was opposing their welfare, their money, their life, how they see the world. Now, we may experience something in this country very, very similar. 
I wanted you to, to get an idea of the, of the feel of what it was like to live in Ephesus because I think that we also can get that kind of feel here in the United States. There might be other places around the world that the very presence of Christianity is going to be a threat to their way of life and they're going to cancel us. And so this is what happened at this time. Now, I hope that you can identify with that. I hope that you can now get a feel of what the Christians in Ephesus were up against. Because um, when we continue on with verse number 2 and 3, we read these words from the Lord. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now, do you get an idea of what they were up against? Of what they had to endure? And I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And so what we have here is Christ saying, to you who live in Ephesus, I have a great commendation for you. I have good things to say about you. And this is something that we can say. He knows. He knows what we're doing right here. He knows what we're doing, the things that are good. And we have done good things. We are like the Ephesians in, in, in many ways. But just because we are doing good doesn't mean that we don't have any things to be reprimanded for. As you can see, the Apostle Paul and, uh, had did a, a good ground work for this place. But the Lord comes back and says, I see your hard work. And he does that here too. He sees our hard work. He knows about the toil that we have here. We know that we have and they have searched the scriptures diligently and that they have and we have accomplished many good things for the advancement of the gospel. And so the, the Ephesians were not lazy slackers. They were not freeloaders. They were not idle gossips. I hope that we can say that about us too. I hope that we can. And along with their hard work, the, the Ephesians were actually very courageous. Courageous. They lived in a city that was dedicated to a false god, dedicated to a god that was not just false, but the immorality that surrounded the worship of Diana was just awful. We're not going to get into all the details of it because it's just, it's just terrible. I, I, I would really wouldn't, wouldn't want to talk about it. But they were preserved in this, in this, uh, in this area that was steeped in this pagan, self-serving idolatry. Now, you may say, well, how does that relate to us? Just look at our country, folks. Our country is steeped in debauchery. It is steeped in a way of life that Christianity is a threat to it. Our very existence and what we believe about God and what we preach in the gospel concerning repentance and faith in Christ is going to be a threat to the very nature of what other people would say makes life worth living. They see us as a threat. The overwhelming influence of paganism in that day is very similar to what we see in our day. It is introduced by false teaching, by false believers. And here we have a commendation by Christ saying, I see that you have a zeal for righteousness. I see that you stand against sin. You cannot bear with those who are evil. They did not tolerate sin within their fellowship. I hope that's true about the churches in the United States. I hope that's true about our church. The Ephesians did not compromise. They did not flirt with the sin of their culture. 
that threatened the church. I hope we can say that about our church. But we could learn a few lessons from them, couldn't we? We could learn that we could have backbone the way they did. They had courage. But the Ephesian church were successful in safeguarding their biblical doctrine and identifying false teachers. But let's go on and say that Jesus continues with his commendation to say this, that they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, but they were false. I wish that we could do the same in this country. There are many people who are false teachers. Many of them profess to be the apostles of God, the apostles of Christ, but they are not. This is another area that we could learn from the Ephesians. It seems that in our culture, we cannot make the simplest discernment about false teachers. They become powerful. They become prevalent. They're mastering the airwaves, the TV, the radio, the printed materials. They are, uh, they, they are hugely powerful. Are not these commendations that were given to the Ephesians designed to awaken something within us? No doubt, if you were in Ephesus and you heard their preaching, you would be impressed with how sound it is. But you would be more impressed with their courage, with their ability to stand in the face of a shouting crowd, screaming, Great is Diana for two straight hours, to be canceled immediately in your culture. They were doctrinally and spiritually sound. They had the truth. They were protective of the truth. They valued it. They were wise in their discernment concerning false teachers. They resisted heresy. They were unwavering in their commitment. They were loyal to the scriptures. But no doubt, because they were that, they were also persecuted. They were persecuted socially. They didn't live in a vacuum. Their neighbors were worshipers of Diana. Their, the people they had businesses with, their every, every dealings that they had around them, their existence were now told to them that they were a threat to them. They were politically persecuted. Even though this is a pro-council, if you didn't like your neighbor because they were literally trying to say his business is against God, he cannot make an idol because that is not a real God, then they're looking at you and saying, well, he's getting kind of personal. He's taking money right out of my mouth. He's taking my kids right out of the private schools. He's doing everything to harm me. This is what these Christians are doing. And they immediately attack back. And they may go to the Roman consul and say, don't you think these people ought to be taxed twice as much? Don't you think that these people ought to be isolated and quarantined? Don't you think that these people need to have something done about it? They're just, they're going to create havoc in this town. They're going to destroy the economy. Everything about them is bad. And so they're going to be persecuted socially. They're going to be persecuted politically. But they will also be persecuted personally. Because when a man becomes a Christian, a woman becomes a Christian, when children believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't do so in a vacuum. They're somebody's son. They're somebody's daughter. They're somebody's parents. They're somebody's neighbor. And when they become Christians, they become isolated. They will be targeted. They will be seen as, who, as what they are. Friendships will be broken. Families will be broken. This is what happens when you live in a place that has their entire view of life dedicated against destroying uh, the Christian. So, 
we're going to take a look at this a little bit further tonight. I'm not quite done with describing the people of Ephesus, but my goal will be to, to get to this point that these things that they did well, it, it's not in and of itself the goal to achieve. You see, the goal to achieve was to become a lover of Jesus Christ. A lover of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to end with this one statement. And tonight we'll get into the practical applications, which will be the remaining verses of this passage, verses 1 through 7. And so when it comes to, wouldn't it be nice if the Lord said to us, I see your work, I see your toil, I am so pleased. I know that your doctrine is good. I know that you know about false teachers. I know that you're able to identify false apostles. But there is this one thing. If you could only have used that to increase and to maintain your love of me. Mm. You see, sometimes we can become enamored with doing the process so well. Mm. And instead of obtaining the goal for which the doctrine was designed. Oh, I'm good doctrinally. But what good does it do if we do not embrace Christ with all of our hearts? Mm -hmm. And that was the goal that Christ had for these people. And so we're going to continue in that line tonight. I will be preaching. Gary will not be here. I want you to all keep Jan and Gary in your prayers. He must remain with Jan right now because she's having some, some issues with the anesthesia that she had. And so, I'm sorry, the part of Gary will be played by me tonight. And so, uh, that'll be happening tonight. So let's go to the Lord now. Let's ask the Lord to help us uh, to maintain our, our thoughts and mind upon him today and give us grace. Let's go to the Lord in a brief word of prayer and then we will sing our doxology. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would once again bless your word to us. May we have our hearts and minds fixed upon the beauty of who you are. May we love you with all of our strength. May all the things that we learn lift our hearts up to you. We pray these things in the Lord's name. Amen.